Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Di Xin. Two weeks after five Chinese state-owned companies announced to voluntarily delist from the U.S. market, China and the United States signed an audit oversight cooperation agreement on August the 26th. The China Securities Regulatory Commission, which signed the agreement, said it is an important step forward by regulators of both sides and that keeping Chinese companies listed on the U.S. markets at an, is an all-win arrangement. What's the significance of this agreement for both sides? How difficult was the negotiation process amid tense bilateral relations? Are we witnessing a partial thaw in relations? I'm pleased to be joined from Sanya, southern China's Hainan province, by Chen Jiahe, the chief investment officer at Novem RK Technologies, and from Hong Kong by Edward Lehman, the managing director at Lehman, Lee and Chu, a Chinese law firm catering to international clients. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Jiahe, let me go to you first. I mean, uh, there has been extensive consultation between the two sides over the past decade to arrive at this bilateral audit cooperation deal. And now the two sides have made what China describes as an important first step to fix issues regarding the cooperation. Help us understand exactly what this deal is all about and how crucial is it? Well, this problem has been there for, I think, probably uh, over a decade, probably almost, almost two decades, ever since we got uh, Chinese companies listing in the United States after the dot-com bubble, they started to have this issue that the United States wants to check all the accounting work paper, uh, whichever piece that is. You know, when you have an annual report, that's usually like hundreds of pages, but that doesn't describe everything. You've got a lot of accounting papers behind that, probably enough to fool uh, one, one large flat. So uh, United States want to have access to all this information in the past decade or two. And China says it, it might concern something like national security data, personal information, these kind of things. And it's very possible. It's a, it's a huge amount of data when you talk about one single company. And there are hundreds of companies. So uh, these two countries do not agree with each other. So that, that has been a dispute over there. And all the companies have been worried. Investors has, uh, have been concerned. And now they are finally coming to a solution that United States says, I still want all this information. China says, fine, but our regulatory committee has to know what you have got. You can have information, but as long as it does not break the, the, the law of the security law, this kind of personal information law, these kinds of things, we just have to know what you have got. So this is a kind of agreement that both countries have reached. Hmm. Edward, the China Securities Regulatory Commission, or CSRC, uh, stressed that uh, promoting cross-border audit oversight cooperation will further enhance the audit quality of uh, the auditors, protect the legitimate interests of investors, and foster a sound international regulatory environment for companies' pursuit of overseas listings in a lawful and compliant manner. What does this cooperation mean for the 200 61 Chinese companies already listed in the United States and for those planning to be listed overseas, especially in the U.S. And what's at stake here for the U.S. side? Yeah, I mean, from the U.S. perspective, uh, they consider it a privilege for foreign companies to have access to USA markets. I mean, those 261 companies that you talked about, it represents about 1.3 trillion U.S. dollars 
that is uh, being brought to the United States to be traded on these different bourses. And so that these are the largest, deepest, most liquid markets in the world. That's the USA perspective. And investors in the United States markets, they believe that everyone should be protected, that uh, they should have trust in the company's financial numbers, regardless of whether the issuer is from a foreign or a domestic uh, uh, place. And further, that foreign issuers want access to our public capital markets, they must be able to play on a level uh, playing field with U.S. firms. Now, just I want everyone to be reminded that the the PCAOB is a nonprofit corporation that was set up in 2002, and it was it was really set up not to kind of uh, make things difficult for China U.S. relations, but it was actually because of the wrongdoers of the. It used to be um, audit companies self-regulated and that was not successful in the American market. So it was a mistake that was done there. But prior to this agreement, over 50 jurisdictions have complied with the requirements that the PCAOB uh, to in investigate and inspect and audit the firms. And, the, and the, really the holdout was China. So uh, that has, has raised a certain, uh, a bunch of challenges. But in, in 2020, which has brought this thing forward, so it's been going on for 10 years, US Congress passed a new law, the holding foreign companies Accountable Act, reaffirming the requirement that a complete accounting inspections and investigations under the HFCAA, uh, if the PCAOB is unable to inspect and completely uh, investigate the registered public accounting firms, that uh, you know that there's going to have for three consecutive years they're going to face a prohibition mm -hmm. or be listed. Right. Well, congratulations on memorizing all of these abbreviations, but the HFCAA basically is this law that's called Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act that was passed in 2020 under Trump administration. Jiahe, now according to that law, as uh, Edward said, if the U.S. Public uh, Company Accounting Oversight Board, which is the PCAOB that he, uh, Edward was talking about, if this board is unable to inspect the company's public accounting firm for three consecutive years, then the company's securities are banned from trade on a national exchange or through other methods. But uh, the act, if you read the, the, the text of it, it, singles out company that have links to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, to some people, this may really look like not holding foreign companies accountable, but holding Chinese companies accountable. Uh, is this law about politics or is it about stopping uh, business um, fraud fraud or misconduct? Well, I would say it's a kind of both the politics and the business saying. I mean, every law made out would be out of some concern of politics and economics is also concerned with politics. When you look at Chinese economy, we have grown from a very small percent of the world economy back four decades ago to well, the second largest one of the world right now, and taking a direct challenge to the economic leadership of the United States, uh, at least from uh, some politicians looking uh, in that way. So in that case, uh, when we have like 261 Chinese companies listed in, in the United States, and the accounting professional says that we really want the uh, working paper of these uh, firms. And that's a very professional thing, and they're right to claim that. that that's also the right thing. So that came out to be the law, but that law would be mainly looking at the Chinese companies because uh, the main problems were concerned with the Chinese companies that they can't get access to the accounting working papers. Edward, but is the law going to be 
apolitical when it's being implemented? I mean, are Chinese companies going to be treated in the same manner or according to the same standards as companies from other parts of the world in terms of access to audit papers? Yeah, I mean, that's what the Americans say. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, and the question is, when is this pudding going to be uh, served up? I mean, the reason, the, the catalyst for all this has been, um, like you had said, uh, Doshun, which is when these audits come up, and they've come up recently, the first round, it was going to be two strikes. I mean, I'm sorry, it was three strikes. If they uh, passed uh, some amendments to this law, it might be two strikes. And then there's a question about listing or delisting unless there's full uh, transparency with regards to the PCAOB, which is, remember, it's the, it's the one who's overseeing the audit firm. There's questions about the implementation of that uh, as well. Is it going to be an even-handed? I think the answer is, is it's not really, and I think you've pointed this out, the HFCAA, which is this Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, has aimed specifically uh, towards the Chinese Communist Party. So if you look at the, the actual legislation, it's that if the controllers are, are members of the party, and you know, it depends on how you want to parse it out, then, uh, then they, have to, they have to be, uh, there has to be some oversight and delisting that might happen and occur there. So is that even in the 50 other jurisdictions? The answer is no. I mean, so this is specifically looking at uh, towards China. I think it's Herculean that there was an, uh, an effort made on both sides to try to, to work out an agreement. But I think that the difficult nature is going to be when these folks come, which is in mid-September, from the PCAOB to actually to actually go through what they need to go through. Jiang mm. how do you look at the implementation process and the challenges that may be involved there? Because, as you mentioned, the enactment of the data security law, the personal information protection law and other laws um, clearly identifies the obligations of uh, certain entities on information security and provides a more operational guidance for these companies to follow and all companies, whether they're listed in the United States or somewhere else or not, they're obligated to comply with laws, of course, in China, which is their home country. So in terms of the operability of this agreement, how could it be carried out within the sphere, sphere of local regulations and laws? Well, I don't think the dispute will just be ended because we have this agreement. You will see a lot of news comes out uh, in, in the next few months and probably next few years. Because what we this, this agreement looks like having is that United States can have access to all the work paper, but it has to be uh, followed uh, and uh, with the presence of the Chinese authority. So when they want some information that is really breaking the Chinese uh, Personal uh, Data Act or uh, National Security uh, Information Act, these kind of acts, what, what can both the authorities do? Can China give uh, the information to the United States? It definitely can't. But can the United States be satisfied because someone says this is a breaking of law, so, so you can't have this part of the work paper? Th that will be the problem. We don't think the problem is uh, settled just because of the dis uh, this mm. agreement is made. We will, the, the capital market will keep on locking. Actually, uh, before this agreement has been made, there has been rumors spread on the market 
market and stocks like uh, Tencent, Alibaba, they have increased by like five or seven percent, uh, like three or four days before this agreement was signed. Right. But after this agreement was signed, th- their stocks become pretty flat. And uh, uh, rumors said uh, Alibaba would be the first uh, to be uh, checked out uh, after this agreement is made. So the stock price uh, dropped by a very slight amount, like two percent today. So it looks like the market is not. Um, totally out of his concern about this uh, uh, this right. thing. I mean, market yeah. is still watching. Yeah. Uh, basically, you mentioned, um, you know, the five Chinese, uh, five. also there was the five Chinese state-owned companies, including China Life Insurance, PetroChina, Sanopec Aluminum Corporation of China, and uh, Sanopec Shanghai Petrochemical. They announced they would delist voluntarily from the New York Stock Exchange. So, Edward, do you think with the passing of this deal, um, there will be less Chinese companies being feeling obliged to delist voluntarily because of the possibility that they may be able to stay on in the U.S. capital market. Yeah, I mean, remember, only about, I think, 25 have been identified right now. There were f- these five that you mentioned, uh, uh, China Life Insurance, PetroChina, Sinopec, um, the Aluminum Corporation of China, and uh, Sun, uh, you know, Sinopec Shanghai. They've announced a delist, and I don't think that that had to really do with the audit dispute sector. I think that that was had to do with, with specifically the uh, the, the law that was passed that was that was saying that the party should not be involved. Mm. So these are state-owned enterprises. Quite, uh, companies like Alibaba. I mean, I certainly don't think that that would be considered a state-owned enterprise, and that would not be something. Okay. I think what you're going to see is yeah. those that are state-owned are. We are, have to leave it there. Yeah. I'm on, okay. Yeah, we have to leave it there. Sorry for interrupting, but uh, many thanks to Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer from uh, Novem RK Technologies and Edward Lehman, Managing Director of Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. We'll take a short break and when we come back, we'll talk about how China's efforts to clean the air paid off, according to a University of Chicago report. We'll hear from its lead author. Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Air pollution remains a daunting challenge across the world, but a recent report says China made big headway. According to the Air Quality Live Index report published in June, particulate pollution in China has declined by some 40 percent since 2013, when China declared a war against pollution. To put that into perspective, it took several decades for the United States and Europe to accomplish the same thing, according to the report. How did China pull it off? What does it mean for the global battle against climate change and what still needs to be done? I spoke to the creator of the report, Professor Michael Greenstone, director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. So, Professor Greenstone, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Straight away, help us understand more about the latest air quality live index report that you have uh, produced. Um, There are a lot of pollution reports out there, but uh, this one looks different because it uh, links air quality with life expectancy, um, its impact on the number of years that people can live. So what kind of model did you did your team use to come up with such a conclusion? The model actually was born of some research. I was very frustrated by uh, the AQI and other air quality indices because I could never remember is brown better than purple, is better than orange, is worse than blue. Uh, and it never was unclear, it was always unclear to me what it meant for my life. Uh, and so 
I conducted a series of studies that related long-term air, uh, air pollution exposure to life expectancy. Uh, and then I took the results from those studies uh, and used them to create this air quality life index. Uh, and it provides a measure for what would happen anywhere in the world if air pollution there were improved to any levels and could be the country's own level uh, standard or the WHO standard. So how long have you been using this model to track the impact of air quality on life expectancy? So I think we've been using it for about uh, five years. Uh, and you know the striking finding that comes from it is that the average person on the planet uh, is losing about two years of life expectancy to air quality relative to if they lived uh, with air pollution concentrations at the World Health Organization standard. And that two years of life expectancy is more than the average person loses uh, from alcoholism or smoking cigarettes or terrorism or war or anything like that. So I think of it as the greatest external threat to human well-being on the planet that exists currently. Is this trend aggravating? Is this trend uh, being alleviated because of efforts of major countries, for instance? And also help us understand the latest findings about China in specifics, please. Yeah, so what's very striking is uh, if you took China out uh, and just looked at the rest of the world, there probably in the last year would have been a slight increase in uh, air pollution. Uh, that is a worsening well-being. But all of the decline that has happened in the world has really taken place in China. And all of that improvement is started uh, and kind of followed pretty directly from when the premier or China itself declared a war on pollution in 2013. Uh, and since then, there's been a 40% improvement uh, in air pollution in China. And it's striking uh, no matter how, what way you look at the data, uh, it's really an amazing reduction in air pollution in a kind of unprecedentedly short period of time. The report also says due to improvements made to the air quality that you meant, just mentioned, the average Chinese person can expect to live two years longer. I mean, that is quite remarkable. So how did you come up with the, this figure? How did you, you know, calculate given the, the size, the diversity of it, and, you know, it's air quality versus life expectancy. How did you make the link? So first, let me just clarify. The two years means if air pollution, which has come down, stayed at the levels it is permanently, relative to permanently staying uh, at the higher levels, then people would live uh, two years longer on average. And it comes from a natural experiment uh, where one uh, set of people were exposed to very high levels of air pollution for their whole lives and another uh, to lower uh, levels of air pollution. And what you see is in the places where people have higher levels of air pollution, uh, you see elevated rates of mortality, not just among the young and the old, but at all age categories. Uh, and it's almost all concentrated in cardiorespiratory causes of death, which are uh, plausibly related to air pollution. So there's a very tight link uh, and, you know, what the improvements in China, as you said, have uh, increased life expectancy uh, by about two years. But I, I just want to unpack that. Like, two years is a number. You know, underneath that number are, like, kids dying too young, uh, people being sick, older people dying prematurely, and, like, you know, just a lot of, a lot of hardship, really. Right. Uh, and so uh, two years is appealing because it's easy to say, but... You know, these are real lives of 
real people uh, and you know, reductions in air pollution allow people to lead much richer, uh, fuller lives. So basically you're saying if the air quality in China would have been the same since 2013, for instance, or even gone worse, uh, the Chinese average life expectancy would have been reduced by two years. Is that what you're saying? Relative to the current levels, yes. And considering the size of the Chinese population, 1.4 billion, so that is actually, you know, quite a bit of an effort, you know, if you have 1.4 billion people each um, expecting to live two years longer than they would have. That is uh, quite remarkable. I mean, how reliable? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's hard to come up with a policy uh, that is, uh, has larger benefits. But just wow. as you said, the Chinese population is so large and these gains in life expectancy are, are, are quite large. It's really quite incredible. I mean, we know the Chinese government did a lot. We know the Chinese people also gave up a lot. For instance, we, we can't do barbecue in open spaces in Beijing, for instance. So we kind of just, you know, got rid of that, uh, that yearning, you know, if you know what I mean. But uh, still... And the winter heating policy, I think, has changed dramatically as dramatic, well. Dramatic, right? yeah, tremendously. And people, the transition has not been an easy one because you have to break away your old habits and adopt a new way of heating up your home, which might not be so economically affordable either. But uh, do you have additional materials or other sources which might validate or verify this result? I mean, are you the only one coming up with this research? No, no. So uh, that's a terrific question. So th this is based on a series of papers that I published. Uh, they were published in a leading uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, both of them uh, in 2013 and 2017. And, you know, they were peer reviewed at the highest levels. Uh, they numbers are a little different than some other studies, but they tell roughly the, the, the same story. A key difference between this work and most of the other work out there is that my research took the setting actually was China, uh, where there were very high levels of air pollution. And so, you know, that I think it is it easier to, uh, it, it does not require extrapolation because it doesn't require going from what happens when you reduce air pollution at already low levels to lower levels. Uh, it really examined what happens at high levels of air pollution when you get a reduction. Uh, and I, I think also the fact that it was based on studies in China uh, gives it further credibility to the Chinese context. Still, to reduce in the time span of seven years air pollution or the PM 2.5 index by 40% in seven years time um, for a country that is China, it's still um, quite remarkable, right? I mean, for, for the world to, to, to imagine, uh, the report says that China achieved this same goal in seven years, whereas other countries such as the United States needed, uh, what, 30 years or something like that? Um, yeah, help us understand why the difference it's worth stopping and taking note of that. Uh, this 40% reduction, which was albeit from a higher level than when the United States started uh, it, uh, its efforts to reduce air pollution, uh, was achieved in seven years without no recessions. Uh, and uh, in contrast, in the United States and Europe, it took several decades for them to achieve comparable reductions in air pollution. And it, it's a testament to the seriousness with which the Chinese government approached the problem. Mm -hmm. 
according to the, the data from the city of Beijing, the PM 2.5 density dropped by 50 percent from 2016 to 2021. Did you uh, look at the numbers for specific cities in your report, for instance, because these are significant part. There are places in China which has, you know, beautiful air, <laughs> not so much of a problem of air pollution, but of course the industri industrialization level is much lower. So how important are these cities in the overall national efforts? Yeah, so the JJJ region was obviously a big focus uh, of the Chinese government. And uh, some of the largest reductions occurred there. In the report, uh, I believe we created a table of the top 50 places uh, by population and just ranked uh, and showed how they uh, how large the reductions were in each one. In some places, it was larger than others, but on average, uh, it was about 40%. Uh, as you said, Beijing and the JJJ region more broadly were uh, a target area, and so it's not surprising the reductions were larger there. Right, and uh, that also involved a huge um, will, right, an extremely strong will to sacrifice the economy, sacrifice jobs, for instance, the steel factories in, uh, in the uh, um, outskirts of Beijing completely relocated. And <laughs> we actually saw the, the sites being used for Winter Olympics, right, as, as the background. That is uh, probably a very good example. So um, how do you look at China's contribution then to the global efforts to fight pollution, air pollution, uh, China re reducing by 40 percent. So on a global level, what does that translate to? China accounts for almost all of the reduction uh, globally in this period. I think the important thing to remember about particulates pollution is it's primarily a local pollutant though. So, uh, and every country is going to make different trade-offs between economic growth and improvements in air quality. You know, what the AQLI uh, really is useful for underscoring is uh, even if there are costs, it's costly to move the steel plants, it's costly not to be able to do barbecue with your friends, it's costly to have more expensive winter heating. Even if there are those costs, there are very tangible and important benefits. Uh, and so what I really intended the AQLI for is a way to quantify the benefits so that they weren't diffuse. They were very concrete uh, and could be contrasted readily with the uh, with the cost. Mm -hmm. Can China's experience be emulated? I mean, by other countries who are looking to reduce their air quality pollutants. I think China can be a model for a lot of other countries in the world. Uh, and when you look around the world and you see the satellite imagery of where the particulate matter is, there's a lot of it's in Asia, uh, some in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, but a lot of us in Asia. And I think, you know, if you go back in time, seven or eight years, I don't think anyone could have imagined or would have imagined that the improvements in China would have been so rapid. Thank you so much, Professor Greenstone. Let's see in the next five years whether we can come back and uh, talk about still more in reduction in air pollutants in China. I look forward to it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lishin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lishin in Beijing. You've got The Point.